0: If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Hopefully you got sermon notes. I'm trying to spoil you. Did you see you actually have a couple blanks? Usually you just get the bare bones outline. Some of you I know are ecstatic right now. And you get to write in, fill in some blank spaces... For some definitions. I can tell some of you are trembling with excitement. You can't believe the good fortune that this is what you get when the senior pastor is out of town. Let me do this. Let me me read our passage. We'll pray, and then uh, we'll work through it as best we can. Paul says in Romans 5, starting at verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. But not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. I pray that by the power of your Spirit and according to to all the promises that we have uh, secured for us in the work of Christ, that you would now take your word, that you would cause it to be uh, pressed down deep into our hearts and into our minds. Father, that you would quicken dead hearts, that you would rouse slumbering spirits, that you would comfort those who are wounded, that you would humble those who are proud, Father, that in all things we would come to stand in wonder and amazement at the work that you have done for us through Christ and what it is that we still stand in store to receive. Father, do what only you can do right now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans 5 marks a transition in Paul's letter to the Roman Christians. For the better part of three or four chapters or so, Paul has been laying out this universal problem that exists for all of humanity, for all of humankind, and it starts off in Romans 1.18 where Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Paul says, the plight for every single person who's ever been brought into this world is that the moment that they take their first breath, they are under God's wrath, because humanity is a race that has rebelled against its creator and that refuses to worship the one who made them. And Paul says in the chapters that follow in chapters 2 and 3, it really makes no difference whether you're religious or irreligious, you're equally damned, because even if you're irreligious, and you claim you don't know that you should be worshiping your creator, the fact of the matter is that every day that you step outside, you see evidence of the fact that there is someone bigger than you who made everything that you move around in. You can't escape it. And that in addition to that, instinctively, you know that there is some sort of moral code embedded in this creation Something that gives you a sense of right and wrong, your right and wrong may differ from the next person, but there still is a concept of right and wrong. And if that's the case, if there is a moral code, a moral law, there must be a lawgiver. But because of rebellion and pride, man says, I don't want to submit. I don't want to bend to the knee. Therefore, I'm not going to order my life according to the lawgiver. I'm not going to worship the creator. But for the people who are religious, it really doesn't get much better. In some ways, it's actually worse because the religious person says, oh, I know who this God is, and I know what He said. I can even give you chapter and verse. But Paul says the problem with that is, is that you rebel against your Creator knowing full well what it is that you're doing and what it is that you shouldn't be doing. So who is worse The pagan who knows little to nothing about God just has some sense of the fact that he should be worshiping someone bigger than himself, or the person who claims to know God and claims to know his word and yet still continues to disobey and break God's law anyway. Paul says either way, the result is the same. You stand condemned. And there's absolutely nothing that you can do, religious or irreligious, to change that guilty verdict that doom that's being held over your head but then he comes in and he he makes the turn chapter three but god just out of sheer grace and mercy out of no obligation has made a way that guilty sinners undeserving of forgiveness can be fully pardoned from all of their guilt They can't do a thing to earn it, they can't do a thing to keep it, but he will give it to them freely if they're willing to place their trust in their burden bearer, in the one who pays the penalty for their sin, which is the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. And so, Paul goes through and he talks about this idea of justification, justification being This act by which a holy, righteous judge looks at a guilty sinner and declares him not guilty because his guilt has been placed on someone else. That's justification. And then chapter 5 comes in, and Paul now in 5 through 8, he starts to look at what the benefits or what the results of justification are. If you have come to know, have come to hear With the ears of faith, your not guilty verdict read over you by your creator because he transferred your debt to his son and he took his son's righteousness and transferred it to you. And now he says, you stand in the rights with me. Now Paul is going to say, now let's look at what that means going forward. And that's where we are in chapter 5. So, if you wanted to contextually talk about what 5, 1 through 5, or 5 and following is talking about, it's the blessings of justification. There are, well, two, kind of two and a fraction that Paul gives, and this is what you have in your outline. Number one, the first blessing of justification is peace with God. Number two, the second blessing is that because of justification, we now can boast on the hope of the glory of God, on. Critical that you write on, not in, on. And then sort of playing off of that, Paul gives kind of two and a half blessings. He's still on the idea of hope, but he says, and it's not just that we boast On the hope of the glory of God, we actually boast in, I in, our tribulation. That's that's what we're talking about this morning. Because we have been declared not guilty by the work of Christ, what does that mean for us now? The main focus for Paul is on the hope aspect. That's where we're going to spend most of our time. We do want to say something about the peace aspect, though, since Paul does list it, and that is a significant blessing. Before we start though, because I know we're not going to have time to delve into it, if you're taking notes, jot down these references on the back side or on the top. If you want to see a lot, uh, see some good overlap with what we talk about here from Romans 5 and what Paul says in a couple of other passages, jot down Romans 8, 16 and following. This idea of hope and glory comes up big time in Romans 8. Romans 8, 16 and following, And then another passage written by Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Those two passages flesh out well some of the things that Paul just lays the groundwork for in this passage. And I know we're not really going to be able to touch on it in the way that we would like, so please do read on your own. Let's start with the first blessing. Because... Therefore, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's important to think about the significance that this statement bears for Paul and for the people that he's writing to. And truth be told, it really is significant for us because things have not changed that much. Paul comes on the scene at a time when there were numerous religions out there. The problem was, is that no religion could guarantee you that you were in good standing with your God. In order to find out whether you were on the plus side or the negative side, you basically had to live your life as best you could, pass from this life to the next, stand before your God and wait to hear what your God now is going to do with you. If He's pleased with you, maybe He rewards you, maybe He blesses you, maybe He gives you joy and paradise and all that. but It may very well be that at the time that you pass from this life to the next, you stand before your God, whichever God you worship, and your God turns out to be unhappy with you, and as a result, you lose out on reward, or you get punished, or you get judged. And that's assuming that you even have the right God, right? Which is one of the reasons why people amass all these different gods, because they want to cover all their bases. Then someone like Paul and these other apostles come on the scene and they say, they say, no, 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 no. Even the Jewish people who think that they have to wait for the end of the age for God to read his judgment, his verdict over the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul comes along and says, I can tell you how you can know for sure your verdict right now. You can get it now... And not only can you get it now, you can get it now and it will never change. I can tell you how to get a not guilty verdict that will never be overturned. You can go through the rest of your life never having to worry about whether or not God is for you or against you. Never worrying whether you're good enough to make God happy with you, to make God pleased with you peace that that burden, that sense of doom that that uncertainty that in the quiet moments of your life you, you wonder is all this real what happens on the earth? Paul says all of that can be settled right now. So in the context of justification here is what peace means. peace means, the peace of justification means knowing that God has acquitted you of all your guilt, that he has already passed down your not guilty verdict, and the verdict will never be overturned. That's peace. And see, the here's part of the challenge. For, for a lot of us, we right, especially if we've been in church for a while, we kind of sit, we nod our heads, yes, 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 right. Peace, right? Verdict, all, all that kind of good stuff. But it's it's far more difficult to lay hold of and to cling to this peace than what we realize, because almost instinctively we go back to or we're tested with these pre-justification thoughts that say, ah, but there's probably still something that God's really not happy with, he's not satisfied, there's still a little bit, okay, by and large he's taking care of the big stuff, but there's still some stuff that he's going to make me pay for, right? Those youthful indiscretions, that secret sin that no one else knows about, not even those closest to you. Perhaps those sins that you still entertain even now, and you just know God's going to deal with this. He's coming after me. You you hear it in a number of different ways, right? Young woman comes in, she's having trouble getting getting pregnant, or she's lost a pregnancy because of miscarriage, and she wants to know, is God punishing me? Young person, lonely, single, can't seem to find Mr. Right or Miss Right. Is God holding out on me because, fill in the blank, parents see their kids start to go off the rails start to live like hellions well this is god coming back to repay me for right you've thought it haven't you paul says if you have been justified by faith in christ you no longer no longer have to entertain those thoughts you can be at perfect peace. Because even when, if we had more time to go elsewhere in Scripture, even when God, who was your judge, now stands with you as your Father, even when your Father must discipline you, He doesn't discipline you so that He can drive you into the ground and pummel you into the dust. He disciplines you so that you can share in His holiness. And He disciplines you, as it says in Proverbs and in Hebrews 12, because He delights in you. Ah. What freedom. What peace. Yours. Mine. Not because we earned it, but simply because we have been declared righteous by Christ. All this means then, that no matter how difficult life gets, and Paul's going to get to that in a minute, right, the difficulties of life, because just because we've been justified, just because God has declared us right with Him, and just because His pleasure now rests on us, that doesn't mean that life is easy, right? Yes? Okay, that being said though, the peace that comes with justification means, that God can no more be against me than He can be against His own Son. Because we have been united with Christ in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection, because we now have been tied to Christ permanently, there will never, ever be a point in time that God will ever stand against me in wrath. Never. That's peace. Second blessing, and here's where Paul wants to spend most of his time. The second blessing is that we boast, we have peace with God, And latter part of verse two, we exult in hope of the glory of God. From here on out, I'm going to use the word boast. Okay, New American Standard reads exult. Most of your versions probably say rejoice. NIV, New King James. I I think all use the word rejoice. All right. Here's the reason why I'm using boast. Number one, because that's the word that Paul uses. All right. Seems simple enough. About 35, 37 times this verb shows up in the New Testament. Paul, Paul uses it 35 out of the 37 times, and almost in every other passage in the New Testament where this verb shows up, our English version is translated as boast. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that here, okay? But secondly, because this idea of boasting on the hope of the glory of God, I think if we just limit it to the idea of rejoicing, even though that's good, this this idea of boasting does have the idea of joy and rejoicing. I think that maybe narrows the focus a little too much. All right, so here's what we need to do. We need to define some terms real quick, and we'll do this in quick order. This idea of boasting. If we were to define boast, and if you're taking notes, you can jot this down if you'd like. To boast is to express pride in being associated with something. To express pride in being associated with something or someone. Or if you just want to kind of paraphrase it, we might say something like, boasting is joyful pride. The pride pride in boasting is what we tend to get hung up on, right? Because that's, that's not what Christians do. Christians don't boast. Christians aren't proud. Well, not supposed to be, anyway. Right? But this is a good kind of pride. This is the kind of pride that the, that the grandparent has when he, when he comes to church, when he's been made a grandfather for the first time, and he tries to pull something out of his pocket, and he accidentally drops a stack of pictures out of his pocket. Oh, my goodness, where, where did those come from? Oh, well, do you want to see my grandchild? Right? Right? The pride is not in himself, the pride, the affection, the joy, the delight is in the infant, is in the baby. But the pride is such and the joy is such that he has to share it, can't keep it quiet, right? Parents for the first time, baby comes out, that baby is the best looking baby, smartest baby, most brilliant, right, in the world, joyful pride. And everyone recognizes that that is a good thing to have. Paul says the blessing of justification means that once we know that God has declared us right, that not only do we have peace now, but now looking forward, we take a joyful pride in the hope of the glory of God. Here's hope now. So this boasting is a joyful pride. It's something that stirs you up and something that leads to some sort of expression in song, in word, in whatever. Here's, here's what the hope is. Hope is confident expectation. Short and simple. Hear me on this. This is very important. Biblical hope is not sentimental. Right? I'm not saying it's not emotional. I'm saying it's not sentimental. When we talk about hope, it's usually something like, oh, I hope he calls me. I hope she'll go out with me. I hope I get the job. I hope I make the team, right? That kind of hope, the hope that we usually talk about or refer to, is a hope that's not really attached to anything. It's just a potential that we wish would come true, that we wish would show up in reality. Scripture never Ever talks about hope as a potential it always talks about it as a certainty as a reality the only difference the only difference with hope is that you just haven't gotten the reality yet so later on in Romans 8 when you're reading after the service you'll see where Paul talks about in hope we wait which means That we're waiting for something we don't see. Because if we saw it, we wouldn't hope for it. That's what Paul means. It's not that we hope that something is real. We know it's real. We're just hoping, confidently expecting that one day we're going to see what we know is out there. We're going to get what's promised to us. So, joyful pride. Boasting on this hope, this confident expectation. What's the confident expectation? It comes in the next phrase, the glory of God. Two passages in Romans clue us in on what this glory of God is. One is Romans 3.23, the other is in Romans 8. We'll put it up here on the screen for you real quick. Romans 3.23, Paul says earlier, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this glory of God is something that we can miss. It's something that we can fall short of. And then another helpful passage comes after our passage here in chapter 8, where Paul says, the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So chapter 3, chapter 8, Talking about the glory of God bookends that frame what Paul is saying right now about this joyful pride in our confident expectation of the glory of God. We're going to see it. What, What is this glory? And for Paul, this glory that we're to confidently expect that stirs us up is something that we lost but that is going to be given back to us. It's the, glory of, it's the glory that comes with being an image-bearer, with being made in the image and likeness of God. It's Genesis 1 and 2. It's that glory. Paul says it's not just simply that we have peace now because God has declared us right, but because God has declared us right, we also now confidently look forward to the time and place in which everything that's wrong with us is going to be made right everything. Everything that we lost is going to be given back to us. Everything broken about us is going to be fixed. Every inability that we're confronted with right now is going to be transformed into success. Every temporal, fleeting, passing, contentment, joy, all of that is going to be given to us in full and it will never go away. Listen to what Lewis says. Lewis is talking about heaven here. I'm going I'm to change the word heaven for glory because I think it encapsulates what we're talking about. Lewis says, There have been times when I think we do not desire glory, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives, or made our friends, or chose our work, and which we still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. All your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you will wait to find beyond all hope that you have attained it. God's word says, for all those who have been united to Christ, for all those who hear with the ears of faith, who see with the eyes of faith, who trust that their verdict was given to Christ, and now their not guilty verdict has been pronounced, God says, from that moment on, you can live in perfect peace. All your debts are settled. You don't owe anything. I will never stand against you in wrath or anger again. And from that point forward, now you look forward to unimaginable glory. This is not something that we hope is true. This is something that is real. You can bank on it, Christian. It's coming to you. You're going to get it. When you think about that, does it stir you up? When you think about it, does it make all this seem less attractive less enticing that's how joyful pride works that's what happens with confident expectation and some of you are sitting here right now and you find it just because of of whatever's going on in your life right now you find it particularly easy to express that, that joyful pride you are rock solid confident that this is coming to you, that you're going to get it. Others of you are sitting in here right now, you find it a little bit more hard to sing excitedly. You find it a little bit more difficult to be confident because your life has been one smack upside the head, one bruise, one blow, one after the other, and you wonder... Is it even possible that God really is for me? If He is, why is my life so miserable? And Paul has a word for you. Paul says, even if, even if you are surrounded by tribulation right now, you still boast. Not in the tribulation, not on the tribulation, right? It's not like I say, hey, look at what God gave me. He gave me cancer. Yay, right? Not that. We're still boasting on the hope of glory, that we're going to be done with all of this. But Paul says that boast, that confidence is so rock solid that even when you're standing on that assurance and trial after trial, tribulation, suffering comes around you, you can still stand on that promise and you can still boast. We just don't have time to get into all of this, but we've got to touch on it because it's too good to pass up. Here's why Paul says, even when life is hard, you're still standing on a rock-solid guarantee of glory that you can boast about. He says in verse 3, not only this, not only do we boast on a certain expectation of glory, not only this, we also boast in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proving character and proving character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Listen people, this, this is what Paul is saying. The reason that even in your tribulation you do not have to be shaken from your certain expectation, your confidence that the glory of God is going to be given to you is because even when tribulation comes, God is still working for you. Right? Did, did you notice what happened here? Paul gives this little chain of events. He says, tribulation works, that's that's the word that he uses, works, it's producing, that's the 2 Corinthians 4, it's working out endurance. Yay, I get the ability to hang tough and suffer this longer. No, 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 no. Because as you endure and as that, Endurance muscle is strengthened, that tribulation, that suffering is developing a proven character in you. It's the character of Christ. And as that proven character is developed, you know what it brings you back to? It brings you back to hope. Why? Because even in tribulation, as you see yourself getting more and more like Christ, you're reminded again this is what I'm moving toward, this is the hope. This is the glory. And if even in tribulation and suffering, all of this ultimately is working towards my glorification, how can it be that God is not going to give me this in the end? So tribulation are things like the flu, headaches, fibromyalgia, indigestion, acid reflux, cystic fibrosis, cancer, ALS, it's loneliness, it's infidelity, it's wayward children, it's doubt, it's depression, it's anxiety. It's anything that reminds you that you have not yet stepped into the glory that one day will be yours. That's tribulation. And when those reminders come, Scripture says you can take it to the bank. That even in those reminders, what God is doing for you is that he is stirring up a love for him that surpasses all of the the light, cheap, fluffy stuff of this world and gives you a hunger for something far, far better. That every time you get the reminder from your tribulation of your brokenness, of your dysfunction, of how much you lack, it's a reminder of the fact that God is already, already working to resolve that. He is already making you like Christ. You are closer to glory today than you were yesterday Peace, confident expectation that sometimes, some ways, God's going to give us all of the glory, all of the reward, all of the blessing that we lost and that we so crave instinctively, sometimes when we don't even realize it. And Paul says, it's a done deal. Not because you did anything to earn it, not because you're gonna do anything to keep it, but simply because God has already said, it's fixed. We need to close. I'm gonna pray, and he's gonna come up, and he's gonna lead us in, uh, it is well, perfect, right? If you can't read a Romans five, or later on a Romans 8 or a 2 Corinthians 4, and if you can't belt out it as well, or even just hum along with it, right? You haven't heard Romans 5. So I'll pray. We'll sing in response to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Father, we desperately need it. Like rain that falls on a parched ground, Like men who are starving, we need to be restored and renewed by your word. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit now would take your message and would cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Do it in such a way that you're glorified, that Christ is exalted, that the power of the Holy Spirit is made evident in our lives, and do it in such a way that we're filled with joy and that our hope for the future is strengthened. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.